This Old Tree, a show that features heritage trees and their human stories. You'll hear interviews with experts, historians, and regular folks to celebrate the myths and uncover the real tales. This Old Tree is sponsored by Schwartz Tree and Landscaping in Cranston, Rhode Island. Professional tree service, landscaping, and plant management. Visit SchwartzTreeCare.com or call 401-941-4440. This show is also sponsored by Foods of New York Tours. Hungry? There's nothing like heading to New York City for some of the best cuisine in the world. Book through their website at FoodsOfNY.com or call 332-236-9635. Now, here is your host, Doug Still. Picture this. We're in Harlem in New York City, and it's the 1920s. There's a cultural awakening going on. There's jazz and dance, theater and literature big celebrities, and lots of new talent looking for a break. And of course, because this is a show about trees, there is a tree that somehow fits into all of this, a symbol of the Harlem Renaissance. It's the Tree of Hope, and it was a good luck charm to black performers looking to make the big time. Garden historian and storyteller Abra Lee is here to tell the story of this particular tree's rise to fame, its demise, and its enduring legacy. That's all coming up. I'm Doug Still, and welcome to This Old Tree. This old tree Standing here for more than four centuries Wonder what you'd say if you could talk to me About what it's like to be this old tree A long time ago, a mature elm tree stood on the east side of 7th Avenue between 131st and 132nd Streets in New York City, although 7th Avenue is now known as Adam Clayton Powell Jr. Boulevard. It was an American elm tree. That is clear to me from photos of the 1920s, but it is long gone. Gone, too, is any trace of the Roaring Twenties. Go to the spot now and you'll see a sleek new apartment building that spans the entire block. Clean, modern, and bland. There are three new little leaf linden trees planted there, hoping to thrive, but otherwise there's not much to draw your eye. The Williams Institutional Christian Methodist Episcopal Church occupies one of the double doors, hardly noticeable, but a presence since the 1950s. But take a time machine back 100 years and this block was thriving with a capital T. This was along the Boulevard of Dreams, full of nightclubs and theaters and dance halls. 7th Avenue and 131st Street was known to some as The Corner, with Connie's Inn and other clubs. Another one nearby was The Hoofers Club, a hangout for top jazz performers and tap dancers. And the biggest and most famous venue of the day was the Lafayette Theater, with its huge marquee lighting up the night, and renowned productions that brought in droves of people from all over the city. Our Tree of Hope stood next to the Lafayette Theater, and is most associated with it, as we'll find out later. It was the height of the Harlem Renaissance, which was, as Professor Cheryl Wall put it, 
a time when black people redefined themselves and announced themselves into modernity. It was an intellectual and cultural awakening that found its center in Harlem, but stretched to other cities around the country like Chicago, Boston, Philadelphia, and Washington, D.C., and also to Paris, Berlin, and London. The backdrop was the Great Migration, which was the mass movement of southern rural blacks to northern cities to seek better wages and living conditions, and to escape life-threatening mob violence. It was a fresh start in a time of great optimism, and the artistic legacy, jazz, dance, fashion, literature, and drama, was a gift to the world. But back to our block on 7th Avenue. What was the Tree of Hope, and what did it have to do with all of this? I'd like to introduce you to my new friend, Abra Lee. Abra is a garden historian, storyteller, horticulturist, and former city parks arborist based in Georgia. Her degree in ornamental horticulture is from Auburn University, and she's also an alumna of the prestigious Longwood Gardens Fellows Program, which she completed in 2020. Recently, Abra has worked as a freelance horticultural writer and lecturer. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, Fine Gardening, Veranda Magazine, and NPR. Her first book, Conquer the Soil, Black America and the Untold Stories of Our Country's Gardeners, Farmers, and Growers, is due out in 2025. Her work seeks to tell love stories about the folklore, history, and art of horticulture. Abra, welcome to the show. Thank you, Doug. I am happy to be here with you today. Happy 2023 is so early in the year, first week of the year. Yes, happy new year to you too. And I think that um, I told you in one of our previous conversations that I was also, well, I also applied to the Longwood Fellows Program at Longwood Garden way back when, oh, <laughs> in wow, the early 90s. Wow. Yeah, and yeah. I went through a a grueling three-day interview process, and I did not get in. So congratulations to you. <laughs> Thank you. And I will say the grueling, the process still feels grueling. And what's interesting about that is that it may be self-formed by us, the interviewees, because the people at Longwood are wonderful, but it feels intense when you're up there. It really yeah. does. Yeah, and Longwood Gardens is so beautiful. It's in the Brandywine Valley in southeastern Pennsylvania, um, but we're here to talk about the Tree of Hope at your suggestion. And I was wondering if you could set the scene for this story. Where was it located? And when? how did the story first come about? The Tree of Hope was located on 7th Avenue and 131st Street in Harlem. And some people would say 7th Avenue and 132nd uh, Street in Harlem. And... It is a tree that um, people gathered under. And when I mean, say people, I mean specifically the Black community in Harlem. So at the prime of the Tree of Hope, it is the Roaring Twenties. The Harlem Renaissance is happening. Black businesses are thriving. Black communities are thriving. This is in the era of the early 1900s. The post-Reconstruction era of America had, had occurred in early 1900s. And Black people... Black communities, many had migrated from the South to the North. So they're going to New York, places like Harlem, in hopes of seeking a better life. Yeah, I know that, you know, it could fill an entire course or 
encyclopedia about what the Harlem Renaissance was about and everything that happened. But, you know, how would you describe it? How is it important to American culture? Renaissance was the part or maybe the first time, certainly the first time in America where the illumination of black art, black culture, black literature is quote unquote mainstream. And it is validated by people outside of the Black community as Black culture in America being something hyper-specific and special to itself. So these people who are uh, descendants of the formerly enslaved have not only come to America, um, their ancestors through way of bondage, they have been stripped of everything they knew throughout the diaspora and recreated their own sound, their own style, their own music their own art, their own way of acting. Jazz is birthed from this. So that is what, what the Harlem Renaissance means. It is It puts, honestly, America on the map as um, an artistic contributor to the globe is what it does. Right. And as you were saying, people were migrating from the South to the North and had this area of New York City that became their own. And yes. there was this flowering of theater and writing and music and ideas um in community and fashion and business and economics and the tree of hope didn't start off being called the tree of hope so there's this is this is where it gets fun the tree of hope is like any other legend it's bigger than itself and it has many iterations and many names and some people the old timers a harlem native or necessarily not maybe not necessarily a native but a person who is a uh, part of the Harlem community. They call them Harlemites. Many of them said that the tree of hope started off being called the tree of wisdom or the tree of knowledge. And it was no different than when you saw people gather in these open air spaces outside in Europe and have their symposiums and discuss the economy, discuss politics, discuss gossip. And with that, people were able to exchange messages. It was it was the message board. It was the internet. It was the chat room. It was the everything for Harlem. And what in particular went on on this block on 7th Avenue between 131st and 132nd Street? What was it known for? It was known most famously for the Lafayette Theater being diagonal to that tree. And the Lafayette Theater was Black Hollywood at the time. It is where... Uh, the successful performers were uh, doing their acts and their st stage shows, whether it was comedy, whether it was music, whether it was theatrical, or it was a place where hopeful actors who were seeking to be the next person of fame and fortune would stand in front of this tree. And what was so significant is that if you were a Broadway manager or a producer, you could walk right outside of that theater and in a moment's notice, grab whatever type of performer that you needed to fill in at the Lafayette Theater. And that is when it starts becoming the Tree of Hope. I do want to tell you a name that is credited to naming it the Tree of Hope. Of course, there's many iterations. I can't validate this. But the person credited to naming the tree, the Tree of Hope, is a person named Lee Whipper. Lee Whipper, I don't know much about their story, but the legend goes that there were some performers who 
were unable to get paid for their work. And they were gathering under this tree, just like anyone else, stage performers. It was probably um, hot. It was probably summer. Of course. It's the only tree. You know, I'm looking at the old photos and it's it's the only tree on the, on the block the that I can tree. see. Right. So naturally they would be underneath the tree. They would be underneath the tree. And what they did is that one of them rubbed the tree and pretty much prayed that they would get their money. They would get paid for the work they had done. They had done the work, but they hadn't gotten paid. And lo and behold, a few days later, they got their money. And so word gets out that this tree has magical powers. And uh, they said that people have more faith in that tree than they even had in themselves. And that is when it becomes the tree of hope. And you're right. There weren't other trees on that street to, to gather under. It was truly a gathering spot. So as what I read was that it wasn't just during the day, but people gathered, you know, underneath the tree all night long. It was like a meeting place. Probably performances were going on even afterwards um, at the Lafayette Theater. And people were there on into the into the night. Yes, uh, there were uh, comments that they, they said that the talk was uh, fast and free up under that tree. The talk, the conversation <laughs> was fast and free. And if you were a gossip columnist, you could get more information from a two minute conversation under that tree than you could get from a three column written out of the paper. So that is what the Tree of Hope was. And it wasn't we're not talking about 10 people, 15 people, 20. We're talking about hundreds, even thousands of people at a time gathered under this tree. And it sounds like, oh, Avery, you're telling us tall tales. Well, guess what, y'all? There are pictures that validate this and show thousands of people on the block lingering, socializing, meeting, uh, having community, having church up under the tree of hope. And so it really was, um, it was a friend of the community. It was a neighbor. It was, it was everything to, to Harlem. Next up, I talk more with Avery Lee about the performance venues on the block, some of the famous performers there, and the eventual loss of the Tree of Hope and what happened. You're listening to This Old Tree. So I'm looking at one of, or I looked at one of the old photos, and the tree wasn't actually directly in front of the Lafayette Theater. It was right next door. And the establishment there was Connie's Inn. Have yes. you heard of Connie's Inn or do you know what, what Connie's Inn was? Yes, I have Connie's name. It's Connie. Uh, the last name is a B. I believe it's a gentleman. And Connie uh, owned an inn there. And this was also a person who was a mover and shaker. I think they even call Connie a wheeler and dealer of Harlem. I looked it up. This was Prohibition and Connie's Inn was a speakeasy. It was established by Connie Immerman and his brothers who immigrated from Latvia. It was a nightclub in the basement that featured acts like Louis Armstrong, Fats Waller, Wilbur Sweatman, and Fletcher Henderson. Like the Cotton Club over on 142nd Street, the audience was for whites only. In 1934, it vacated and moved downtown, and the Ubangi Club moved into the spot. The Ubangi Club featured black, cross-dressing, gay and lesbian performers like Gladys Bentley. You know, there was a lot going on. So there was... Lafayette Theater, there was Connie's Inn, there's another one called the Hoofers Club. So all of these establishments had performers and people would meet under this tree and would probably take jobs, you know, in, in different places. Yes, absolutely. And famous people. I mean, this is the thing. People would go there to seek a job, but people who had a job, the performers who were successful and already employed 
in the theater knew to pay their respects to that tree. So where they may not kiss the tree or pray to it, they would certainly touch the tree. This was a tree that people felt superstition about. They really felt that you were going to pay homage to this tree if you want your success to continue. So there was a, I'm saying that because there was a spiritual connection to this tree in the community. And if we think back of the, the people that are under this tree that community has built, the ancestors, that would uh, coincide with, with their beliefs about nature and, and the power that, that it does have. So it was, um, it was important. It was beyond important. It was, it was family. It was family. And its fame was most intertwined with the Lafayette Theater. If the Harlem Renaissance mainstreamed the illumination of Black culture, as Aber explained, the Lafayette was an early beacon. It was the first major theater to desegregate in 1913, allowing African-American theatergoers to sit in the orchestra alongside their white counterparts. The Lafayette staged Broadway hits such as Madame X and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. The musical review that became known as Darktown Follies popularized two dances, Ball in the Jack and also the Texas Tommy, which grew into the Lindy Hop. Duke Ellington made his New York debut here. The Lafayette players were the resident stock company, and they performed new plays and classics before almost exclusively African-American audiences. The Lafayette Theater was known for having the biggest, greatest performers of the day. So people like the great singer and orator Paul Robeson, uh, people like uh, Ethel Waters, the famous entertainer, tap dancer, performer, um, people like Bill Bojangles Robinson, who was considered or is considered the greatest tap dancer ever. This is what the Lafayette Theater produced. And these are names that you and I may recognize today from days of old. And there are names beyond their names that may not ring a bell today, but are even more legendary to those people. The Lafayette Theater was Hollywood. It was Hollywood for the Black community. It was where you went to to change your life, to change your generational wealth. Um, it, it had that level, to change, to change your economic status. It was that important. Now, my understanding is it was a combination of shows from Broadway, from downtown, but it was also, you know, original shows or plays written by African-American playwrights and, and writers as well. It was. It was a Black Broadway, and it wasn't just Broadway shows. It was comedy shows. It was opera shows. It was theatrical shows. Any type of show that you, um, I think you just said vaudeville, that you can relate to entertainment, that is what happened at the Lafayette Theater. And it was something that was known coast to coast in the Black community. You got to think, this is a time in Harlem where Langston Hughes is roaming the streets. Zora Neale Hurston, the incredible writer, a great friend of Langston Hughes is roaming the streets. County Cullen, Cab Calloway, Duke Ellington. I mean, the names go on and on. This is when the Tree of Hope is at its prime. So every name that you can think about, Louis Armstrong, Josephine Baker, that is what is attached to this tree. One name that you mentioned was Ethel Waters. Could you tell me about Ethel Waters and who she was? Ethel Waters was of her time, and I am no uh, entertainment historian, but I certainly uh, do know a, a little bit about her career. She was one of the, if you think of the most famous Black Hollywood actresses now, people like, I think of Octavia Spencer because I'm an Auburn graduate, and so is she. You think of um, other Black actresses um, who 
have uh, succeeded. I don't know why my mind is blanking, y'all. I'm a horticulturist, and I'm sitting up here thinking <laughs> I can see a hundred black actresses in front of my face, and I'm naming none. And uh, they were the celebrities of the time. Yes, they were the celebrities of the time, and that is what Ethel Waters was. I mean, she was. She had the fame. She had the fortune. She had the following. She had the the gossip callers uh, following her, the paparazzi, all of that. So that is what Ethel Waters was, one of the most famous people in America. Is there anyone finer in the state of Carolina? If there is, then you know And so this was before the Apollo Theater. Right. The Lafayette Theater precedes the Apollo Theater. And what happens is the 1930s come along. And what we know is that that is when the Great Great Depression starts at the end of the 1920s. And people really were holding out hope that things would turn around, things would change. But unfortunately, that was not the case. And the felling, when the Tree of Hope is removed. This was 1934. Um, it is considered the beginning of the end of that era in Harlem. And people say Harlem was never the same. Now, I understand that, that the Tree of Hope was removed because they did a, a street widening project. The city came in and widened 7th Avenue and had to remove the tree. And so yes. it was the automobile. This happened everywhere. I mean, this happened all throughout New York City. I'm in Providence now, and there were there's one... Uh, major boulevard called Elmwood Avenue that had uh, a double LA of American elm trees. And in the 1930s, to make room for commuters to drive in and out of the downtown, they widened the street and removed the, I mean, there was a big outcry. It was in the newspaper. So this is not unusual with, with the automobile, a lot of, we lost a lot of tree canopy, unfortunately. And the way that it was reported in the Harlem papers and in the black newspapers around the country, because this was national news in, in our community, was that this was the crash heard around the world. It wasn't a stock market crash. It was this tree crash into the ground. <laughs> and the reporters uh, stated that cars had become more important than pedestrians. And so the city came in and cut down this tree and People could not believe what was happening. I mean, they said that um, there was much weeping. There was much wailing. And if you've ever been to a, a good old fashioned funeral at a black church, a Baptist church or a country church, you know what that's about. Uh, there were uh, trumpeteers who brought out their trumpets and started playing the St. Louis blues in a wow. slow um, a sound. So there was a real. It's very upsetting. Oh, my gosh. Yes. And. Uh, so upsetting to the point when the Parks Department came through that um, the people who were witnessing this, the hundred, a crowd starts to gather. There's already hundreds of people there daily, but more and more people gather. And someone had the wherewithal to say, let me go get my saw. Let me go get my axe. Let me go get my hatchet. And I'm going to start cutting up pieces of these pieces of the tree. And they started selling the pieces of the tree on the spot. So right, they kept it and they handed it out. And some people sold it. I don't know how they were able to sell it, but. Oh, there is, I mean, it's the tree of hope. And I got the saw. Doug, you don't have a saw and you want this big chunk. You can't just walk off with it for free. How are you going to get it to your house? <laughs> and it's the 1930s. It's, I mean, there's right. hustle in there too now. These are business folks. So, right. Um, they, so, yes, there were people who bought portions of the tree. There were people who 
grabbed portions of the tree. They said, look, if you didn't have any money, you were picking up the sawdust off the street and putting it in your pocket for this tree. People were taking roots off of this tree. And that was how important it was to them. And it was so important that once the tree was completely failed and gone, there were people in Harlem that avoided that area altogether moving forward. They didn't want any parts of it because they believed it to be a bad omen when that tree was removed. Here's the title from a New York Times article about it from August 21st, 1934. Wishing Trees End Saddens Harlem. Charmed circle where noted stage folk prayed for jobs is bereft of fetish. Wood cut for souvenirs. 400 watch in gloom as source of old superstition falls in widening of 7th Avenue. Aber then brought out an article of her own from her files. It's so interesting. Like, I love these headlines. It says, I don't know if you see this one. It says, it was murder, Jack. I mean, people were like serious about that. So, and that was a first person account um, of the tree being filled. Oh, wow. And you can see the people sawing. I don't know if you can see that. You can see the folks sawing the tree up. And wow. it was murder, Jack. I know, isn't that incredible? Like, that's you what find that? people, um, in, that's a, so that's the thing. In, you mentioned it was written in the New York Times. This was in the Amsterdam News, which was a black paper. So most black, I mean, the Times was the Times, but this was the news to them. So so pieces of the tree are being sold, taken away as souvenirs. And I'd like to get to one in particular. There was a piece of that tree taken by or purchased by perhaps Ralph Cooper Sr., that's correct. And knowing his influence, knowing who he was and his relationship as an entertainer, as a, a famed person of that community. Well, who was Ralph Cooper Sr.? Ralph Cooper was a, a performer. He was an MC. He was a man about town. He was uh, a very handsome black man. He was there. Clark Gable, Gone with the Wind was popular at the time, and he was considered Dark Gable, which I think is hilarious because he's a black guy and he's just this dashing, charming, beloved uh, a member of the entertainment community. And knowing who he was, his relationship to the Lafayette Theater, being a performer there, having a great business relationship, I highly doubt he paid for his hunk of the tree. But the way legend has it is that he had uh, a portion of this tree when the tree was cut and had a stage hand mounted stage left at the Apollo Theater. So the Apollo just opened? Yes. The Apollo Theater on 125th Street had actually opened in the early 1920s, but it became a venue for Black performers and patrons in 1934, becoming more like what we know it is today. But the Apollo had been known for its amateur nights. When you're at the Lafayette, you're a professional at this point, or you're trying to become a famous professional. Apollo is amateur night, and that is what it is known for. Even to this day, um, they still have some amateur nights at the Apollo. Maybe not like the heyday, but they're still there. And Ralph Cooper was the MC ABC, which was a new broadcasting company in America at the time, had gone to the Apollo in November 1934 to live broadcast nationally the amateur night. And on that night, Ralph Cooper... And, and perhaps before, maybe not specifically on that night, he had mounted, he had had someone mount a portion of the Tree of Hope on the stage. And the intent was that you needed to touch this tree. This tree was a part of the community and you needed it to hope that you weren't going to get booed off the stage because at the Apollo during the amateur night, your success and your failure 
is judged by the audience. And they have a gentleman called the Sandman that would come out with a hook and pull you off the stage if you were booed. (laughs) And at one point, they would shoot you off the stage, not literal bullets, but blanks. And the audience would react to that, these blank guns, and they go pow, 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 and shoot you off. But if you weren't booed off the stage and the audience was roaring and excited about you, it could change your life. And that was what uh, Ralph Cooper brought. He brought the national fame and national attention um, through radio, through that, honestly, what we're doing now. Um, and, and that is what I feel like illuminated the tree of hope uh, into infamy, to be honest. So he took a slice of that tree. It was about a foot tall and about 18 inches in diameter. And he had a stagehand take it, shellac it, and apparently it put it on a gold pedestal. That's right. And mount it. That's right. And it's right on stage. To this day. And it's been on stage until this day. And since, since 1934, it has been on that stage. It has. And anyone who goes on the stage at the Apollo, and I can tell you, I have watched many an amateur night, Showtime at the Apollo when I was growing up. Uh, there is not a person. If you walk past the stump and don't touch it, they redirect you, go back. You won't. They won't even <laughs> let you walk up to the mic without touching that tree stump. Yeah, you can't let them go on without touching the tree of hope. No, and if you don't, you honestly start off on the wrong foot with the audience. You really do. So um, it is it is that important. I mean, we're talking almost 100 years now. And so does every performer touch the, the tree of hope before they go on stage? Obviously on amateur night, but the professionals too, you know, would Stevie Absolutely. Wonder Gladys Knight, Beyonce. There's not a professional Black performer, entertainer who has performed at the Apollo no matter how great Michael Jackson grand you are, you have touched that tree. Yeah, if you haven't, I don't think we know their name anymore. So the Tree of Hope, when it was on 7th Avenue, was along the curb and it got removed. But the stump of it was moved to the median, the new median. And there was a plaque. Bill Bojangles Robinson was responsible for doing that. And he got the mayor... Uh, Mayor um, LaGuardia came out and there was a big ceremony. Could you tell me who Bill Robinson was? Yes, Bill Robinson was the most famous, probably the most famous living performer. We just said her name today is Beyonce. And in his day, he was that. He was the most famous performer there, not just in the Black community, famous worldwide. Make them play that crazy thing again. I got to do that lazy swing again. Hi-ho, doing the new low down. Got my feet to misbehaving now. Got a soul that's not for saving now. Hi-ho, doing the new low down. And this was a person who had the respect of the Rockefellers, uh, Fiorello, um, if I'm saying his name correct, uh, Mayor LaGuardia. So when the tree was removed and there's an obituary in the paper and there are poems written, And there, as I said, there is a whole procession to mourn this tree. People are wiring in their condolences. Bill Robinson goes to City Hall. He goes to the mayor and says, long story short, what have you done here? You have destroyed this community. And guess what? You got an election in November, don't you? So it was no coincidence that two days before the November election, Mayor Fiorello, Bill Bojangles Robinson, who wasn't just only one of the most famous entertainers in the world. He's also considered the mayor of Harlem, the commissioner of the park department that cut the tree down shows up. Other mayors of other boroughs or people who are considered quote unquote mayors show up on that day. And a big hunk of that uh, tree 
is replanted in the middle of the, the, the median, the island, in that street. From what I can tell, there's, there was a piece of the stump and then there was also a new tree planted, a new tree of hope. There was a new tree planted, hope, and then it was replanted in another location in 1941. So what we're referencing now, you and I, is the tree of hope is brought down in late August of 1934. And two days before the November election of 1934, the New York election, the stump is replanted. And it is a big deal. There are thousands and there's a beautiful picture that shows thousands, at least 3000 people show up for this replanting of the stump. So that is how much, and this is in the middle of the Great Depression. So this is how important this tree is. And this is how powerful um, Bill Bojangles Robinson is, that he is able to, uh, you know, throw up the bat signal and say, y'all need to get y'all's tails down here and right this wrong that you have done in this community. I'd like to read what it says on the, on the plaque. So the plaque says, the original tree of hope, beloved by the people of Harlem, and in quotes, you asked for a tree of hope, so here it is. Best wishes, Bill Robinson. And to give context to your audience, Doug, the old timers, at the time the tree is cut down, people, and by people, I mean the reporters, the gossip columnists, the the the, the folks that, that lingered on the street and, and did their uh, daily will and dealing, went to what they considered the old timers, the oldest people they could find in Harlem, the hundred-year-olds, and said, hey, how long has this tree been here? And they could never settle on a day, but some people who were of a certain age of that time remembered that tree being there since 1875. So we're talking 1934. So they knew it had been there at least for 50 years at that point. Um, so that is the level of meaning that this tree had to the community where the old timers were like, when I was a child, it was there. So it, it was so sad when it happened. It really was. You are listening to This Old Tree. I've got more of garden historian Avery Lee gets into the true meaning behind Harlem's Tree of Hope in just a minute. The tree became a player in the arts folklore side of the Harlem Renaissance, um, which obviously was so much more. But are there works of art or literature since then that the tree itself has inspired? Yes, there was a Broadway play that was written about the tree. I think it was called The Wishing Tree. And I'm not saying that it was on major Broadway. It was probably on the Black Broadway, meaning in Harlem uh, that it was shown. And then we get to the 1960s and the 1970s. This tree is still not forgotten. And there are artists that come along, uh, like one of the fathers of Afrofuturism, Algernon Miller, to create a beautiful steel sculpture um, that is an abstract sculpture that um, honors the Tree of Hope and honors this legacy in Harlem so that it is not forgotten to this day. And there was also a time, it was either late 1960s or early 1970s, there was a ball that was an honor of Cab Calloway and the person with the best costume would win this trip on Eastern Airlines. The airline is defunct now, but was the big deal of their time, the Delta of their time, the British Airways of their time. And the person came dressed as the Tree of Hope and had the pictures of Ethel Waters and of Cab Calloway and of Bill Bojangles Robinson attached to their outfit. And they won this top prize at that ball. So this is a tree that it, they say legends never die. This tree is, there's someone in Harlem today, ain't just someone, many someones that can tell you um, if there's top five most famous things out of Harlem, including the, this tree is the Harlem Renaissance. I mean, it is that important. 
Why do you think a tree drew the attention of these performers and their fans um, as a repository for their particular hopes and dreams? It, it very well could have been a wall or a stone or a door handle or something, but why they connect with this tree and, and why do you think a tree? The connection to the tree is certainly ancestral, it's communal. I think of trees, of Black people gathering under these mighty oak trees in the South that are along the river and having baptism. I think about people having full-on church up under these trees. I think about the first reading of the Emancipation Proclamation um, stating that, that the Civil War was over and that uh, slavery was no longer legal in the United States happens under a tree. So that is where community happens for many Black people. Tuskegee, um, one of the greatest uh, universities in the United States, certainly um, the, the historic HBCU, Historically Black College and University, is built on a, a former plantation, you know, covered in trees at that time. So trees are, I, I think about them almost like you think about the, the grand ceilings of uh, these churches all across the world in Europe. That's what that canopy is to people, to Black people, and, and these places where we can gather and feel free and be our unapologetic selves and speak in the language that we want to speak and the street slang, you know, this is where we can create music. This is where we can um, exchange words and ideas. So that is why that was important to that community. And honestly, I, I still would argue to this day. It's funny, the theme of tree canopy acting like a cathedral or the roof of a cathedral is one that's found in other traditions as well. And we spoke about that in a previous podcast about the American elm and how it forms cathedral-like canopies over streets. And so it's interesting that you brought that up as having to do with this tree as well. And again, Harlem at this time, the Great Migration, where you see millions of Black people leave the South, where the the South is 90% Black and uh, half of the Black South leaves and goes to Pittsburgh and New York and Chicago and Dayton, Ohio, seeking better lives. Even my own family members um, were part of this great migration. And I say that because this is a bunch of country boys and a bunch of country folk, men and women, country people that are really rolling around Harlem at the time. They're not necessarily mostly native New Yorkers. And so they're used to hanging up, hanging under trees in the South. And I don't mean that um, in a in a uh, insulting way in, in terms of lynching. I mean, gathering, I guess the better word I should have used would have been gathering under trees in that Southern heat, that humidity getting under the shade. So it would have been a normal reaction for them to, to be a part of this tree. And the fact that this tree symbolized hope where parallel at the same time, since I brought up the word lynching and, and hanging from trees in the South, Oak tree isn't necessarily looked at as this great mighty thing or the great mighty elm because it is used as domestic terrorism. So there's just this really polar opposite thing of, of this tree, particularly in New York, representing hope and light and not death and destruction uh, the way that it would have represented possibly in certain parts of the South at the time. And really, that's one of the legacies of the Harlem Renaissance is that Black people have been able to reclaim their histories and stories and tell it for themselves. Absolutely. And that was what the Harlem Renaissance was. And you had the writer, someone who I certainly consider the, and not just me. I mean, many people consider her the star of the Harlem Renaissance in terms of writing Zora Neale Hurston, where she unapologetically writes about the black community. She's not trying to be W.B. Du Bois and 
go to school in Germany. She's fine writing about the country, Black community in Florida, in her hometown, Eaton, Eatonton, Florida, Eatonville, Florida. So that is what the Harlem Renaissance is, where Black people are saying, we've got our own culture, we've got our own style, our own art, our own everything. We don't have to recreate with the Europeans, the Italians, um, even our own brothers and sisters in the in, in the continent of Africa are doing, or in the Caribbean, we got our own thing here. And that was what was so special about the Harlem Renaissance. And honestly, that's what's so special about the Black community in America today. This is a community that was stripped of their culture, their language, their food, their parents, their relatives, their everything, their clothes. And then they everything is taken from them and then they recreate something completely new. And that is how we have jazz and hip hop and Negro spirituals and gospel music and soul food. And the list goes on and on. And the community is continuously reinventing itself. And then with the interview about to wrap up, Abra dropped a big surprise about an ancestor of hers. As we are talking about the Tree of Hope um, making its way to its forever home at the Apollo Theater, outside of the pieces that were kept by the community, I have a fun fact Harlem story to tell. And there is a woman, and your audience can uh, look up her films on YouTube, named Mabel Lee, Mabel Lee. And Mabel Lee is a relative of mine. She is uh, someone that was raised uh, as my grandfather's sister and um, made her way, migrated from the South to the uh, North in New York, an incredible singer, dancer. She passed away in her 90s, not too long ago. And when she passed away, um, her name was illuminated outside of the Apollo Theater. And I was fortunate to meet her many times in my lifetime and uh, she came down to not only my grandfather's 90th birthday when my grandfather passed away. She was so important to our family and most importantly to, to my grandfather um, that we held off on his funeral to get Mabel Lee down here. So she was truly an Apollo legend. So That's I, amazing. When did she perform? Oh, my gosh. From the 1930s, 40s. Um, and the soundies, I almost want to compare them maybe to short films or music videos. But just a gorgeous, gorgeous woman. Um, if you look up Mabel Lee and look up some of those films, um, there's a real famous one. I think it's called The Cat Can't Dance that she did. And she's singing and the trumpet players behind her. Um, but that's my connection to the Tree of Hope. And you better believe Mabel Lee, my relative, even though I haven't touched the Tree of Hope, I have a relative that has. And she's passed on as well. But uh, she was truly a legend of Harlem and a legend of the Apollo. And honestly, God rest her soul. If she was here, I think you and I would be up there today getting a VIP tour of that tree. Here in 2023, what inspires you about the Tree of Hope? What inspires me about the Tree of Hope is uh, the possibility of what can happen tomorrow. That as polarized as this country is, and maybe that's, I, I would argue is an overused word, but really it's not. That is a very factual word. There is still hope. There is still possibility. There is still a way. There is still a way to economic empowerment. There is still a way to um, exchange ideas that will better this country, better this world. The tree represents that, for lack of better words, that we really are the change that we want to see. And it is possible, but it is only possible through human interaction and community and, and gathering that community again. So I think if one word the tree of hope represents to me, it is community. And, and we must get back to that um, to build and to be better and to succeed and thrive and survive. 
Abra, I really enjoyed talking with you today. I really appreciate you coming on the show and talking about the Tree of Hope and your thoughts about that. Thank you for having me, Doug. This has been so much fun. And um, I'm just, I'm appreciative to be with you today. It's a real honor. Thank you. And I wish you a, a great 2023. I, I appreciate that. I think it's off to a great start. And um, I, I, I accept the blessing and I receive it and I reciprocate that to you as well. If heritage trees are living links to the past, in this case, it's a stump up on the Apollo stage. It's a good luck charm, but it's also a symbol of possibility and of community that every performer is invited to take part in. From Duke Ellington, to Abra's great aunt Mabel Lee, to the stars of today. You've been listening to This Old Tree, and I'm Doug Still. Again, I want to thank Abra Lee for being such a warm and entertaining guest, and I'd like to thank you, tree lovers, for joining us today. If you like the show, one way to show your support is to hit the subscribe button on your podcast app, and geez, I'm going to get that Patreon link up on the show's webpage one of these days. I'll let you know. You can get links and information about Abra in the places we've talked about in the show notes, and see photos and other related tree stuff if you follow This Old Tree on Instagram, Facebook, and Mastodon. Also, if you'd like to submit a three-minute tree story short about an important tree in your life, record it on the Voice Memo app on your phone and email it to me. I would love to hear from you. And you guessed it, this is Mabel Lee singing The Cat Can't Dance. Enjoy the rest of it, and see you next time. for listening to This Old Tree. This Old Tree is sponsored by Schwartz Tree and Landscaping in Cranston, Rhode Island. Professional tree service, landscaping, and plant management. Visit SchwartzTreeCare.com or call 401-941-4440. This show is also sponsored locally by Foods of New York Tours. Hungry? There's nothing like heading to New York City for some of the best cuisine in the world. Book through their website at foodsofny.com or call 332-236-9635.